from Palma de Mallorca to the global super yacht community. Super Yacht Radio. In introducing our next guest, we are thrilled to have uh, Quinton Bargate join us. Now, most of you in the industry will know uh, and understand that putting together a super yacht is no easy task. It involves not just a shipyard, but you may have, say, an owner from America, a shipyard in Italy, third-party companies coming from Germany and Scandinavia. And what holds all of these things together are the contracts and the legal framework that makes everything run smoothly. Put in place just to give clarity and to give the security and to lay out everybody's obligations. I may be corrected in my assumptions there. And, uh, but they come into play when there's a problem, when something goes wrong and people go to the contracts to see how best to resolve these problems. We have today Quinton Bargate, who is the um, founder and chief executive officer of Bargate Murray. And um, I'm going to pass you over to Quinton to explain his many, his vast skill set, but it's, it's all around contractual law, putting together the contracts for super yachts and making sure it all runs uh, smoothly on that side. Quinton, thank you very much for joining us. We're thrilled to have you on, on Super Yacht Radio. Uh, good morning, uh, Dave. Uh, I'm thrilled to be here. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to explaining some bit more about the world of uh, a Super Yacht Lawyer. Yeah, well, if we could start off, Quinton, how did you get into the Super Yacht, yacht side? You started off as a solicitor in your younger days. How did you get to where you are today? Well, look, I, uh, I was initially, um, I worked for large firms. I worked for a big firm called Lovell, White and King in those days. This is back in uh, the mid-1980s and was part of their shipping group. And uh, after a few years, I joined, back in 1987, I joined Simmons and Simmons, a big London city firm, as part of, uh, uh, of the uh, litigation department, as it happens, and with the brief to set up a cross-departmental international trade and shipping group, which I successfully did. And in those days, Dave, this was primarily dealing with commercial uh, shipping law, not yachts. It was uh, all about um, tankers, oil trading, commodities, and um, commercial shipping transactions and contracts to charter parties, bills of lading, and that sort of thing. Um, But towards the end uh, of my time uh, Simmons and Simmons in about, uh, let's say, I, I, I formed Bargate Murray in 2004. But in the last few years before that date, having handled a number of large transactions and large cases, I became increasingly involved as a result of uh, a change in the industry, I suppose you'd say, in the uh, luxury asset world insofar as I did a lot of super yacht work. And uh, the basic background to super yachts and to other shipping work is quite similar, but there are significant differences in type in terms of the types of people who are running these yachts, what the purpose of them is, etc. And uh, so, the, when Bargate Murray, my firm now, started up in 2004, uh, it started with the background of uh, really the same time as the the way the, the yacht market started to develop. Um, Because that really got going in around about 2000 uh, and going forward. Uh, So, Bargate Murray has kind of paralleled the development of super yachts, if you like, over the last 15 years it's been in existence. Uh, The the complexity behind, I mean, when I look at the build of a super yacht, um, 
you know, as I say, you, you could have a, a, an owner who is, say, English. Um, the company could be, say, in the Caymans. Then you've got the shipyard in Italy, and you've got these people from all over. But putting together the yes. legal framework for something like that when it comes to multi-jurisdictions, multi-culture, what goes into that? Well, look, the most important thing, Dave, the most important thing to bear in mind is that you're absolutely right. First of all, there are it's an it's an international cross-border type arrangement. Um, we do a deal with a lot of uh, yachts which are flagged in, for example, the Cayman Islands. Mm -hmm. a, a, a good choice, a very high quality British red ensign uh, registry. But it could be they could be registered in, in Malta. They could be flagged in um, and, and many other jurisdictions. When you flag a yacht or do any transaction, you've got to be aware of the different people, different stakeholders involved. What you've got to do is have a single jurisdiction covering all the contracts. So you mentioned earlier on, um, I think, or we were discussing earlier on, the, uh, the fact that the, these transactions are quite complex. Uh, they are complex, but they can be made a lot less complex if you have a single governing law uh, uh, applied to each of the contracts involved. So, for example, if you've got a, a new build yacht contract governed by English law, You've got to make sure the other contracts feeding into that, which are necessarily part of it, are also governed, hopefully, by English law. Um, and uh, uh, the, even better, if you've got the main shipbuilding contract governed by English law, you would also want to make sure uh, that um, in the ideal world, you've got a sensible means of resolving disputes, not necessarily through the courts, but for the sake of privacy and uh, confidentiality, you would use arbitration normally. Um, and there are other techniques as well you can do in terms of uh, technical disputes to hive those off to expert determination. So um, in every yacht contract that I've been involved in, um, we've tried to make sure there is consistency across the board that all the contractual arrangements in place are governed by the same jurisdiction system. So you can bring them all together. You've got the same standards applied. And in general, let's say you're acting for a, uh, American owner or a Russian owner, uh, an overseas owner, and being built at uh, a Dutch yard. The common sense jurisdiction to choose is English law because that is the uh, that's a trusted jurisdiction to start with, uh, and uh, it'll it'll deliver good results. But only if it's if, if it's uh, if it's then um, managed, if you like, by uh, arbitration in in London. So that's the easy way forward. But it could also be, it could be uh, arbitration, it could be Dutch law arbitration in Holland, or it could be uh, American law, of course, is also equally good. So a, a choice has to be made right at the outset uh, when the contracts are being discussed to make sure you've got that single system of jurisdiction of affecting all these different uh, all these different contracts. And can, who drives that? Who, who drives I that decision? Just ask a, a simple <clears throat> question for clarification for those that are yep. less familiar. But um, you're talking about jurisdictions, um, obviously, because this is a very much an international market. Yes. But uh, there's the jurisdiction and, and the laws of each country. Can you explain then the the concept of maritime law where that distinguishes differently to the jurisdiction of a country as well because we are talking yeah yes we are, you're right i mean there are well first of all there are 
uh, international agreements which are, are enforceable in, in multiple jurisdictions. That's the first point. Uh, also, but on top of that, there are also maritime laws which are um, there's the international law of the sea, for example. There is there is there are um, international treaties which govern the applicability uh, of uh, rules governing the uh, use of uh, yachts and vessels on, on on the high seas. There are pollution conventions, uh, and so and so so on and so forth. There are, there's a lot of internationally applicable laws, but what often happens uh, is that those laws will not necessarily be interpreted in the same way. So. If you're talking about a consensual arrangement, like a contract with a yacht builder and uh, an owner looking to build a yacht, then generally speaking, they are straightforward contractual arrangements governed by the law that the parties choose to use. The parties choose to use. But in other situations, it could well be the case that there are other um, international conventions which apply uh, to the use of those yachts. Um, so the safety of life at sea, the SOLAS conventions, for example, um, which are international conventions, which which kind of overarch the, the choice of law. And whichever law you choose, they'll still apply. So uh, piracy and other the conventions applying to a number of different areas, tax treaties, uh, for example. In Europe, it's VAT. Uh, there's supposed to be uh, a single code, if you like, uh, but in practical terms, it's interpreted differently in each country. So there's there's additional levels of, of confusion and and, uh, and difficulty. Uh, so when I tell you, you know, that, there's a, that you you should try and bring everything together under a single governing law, then that's what you're trying to do. So far as the contractual private arrangements between the different parties are concerned, but you've got to bear in mind also at the same time and potentially get independent advice from local lawyers. The uh, uh, other laws, the international conventions, the international tri tax treaties, uh, which also apply to the same the same arrangements, which are going to be compulsorily applicable because of where and how the yacht is being built. Or, and that applies, of course, to any other international transaction as well. And can I ask, is there a commonality of language across all these contracts? Or do you have a mishmash? You know, some of them are in Italian, some in Dutch, some in English. <laughs> Uh, and I'm, I'm asking this because we we uh, yeah we live in Spain, and I know with language there are nuances of language and how you interpret the intent of that language. Where mm. I would imagine if you have multi languages, then th that would be very problematic. Where if there was a commonality that they were all done in English or German, um, well, th does yeah, that make sense? It, it makes sense. I mean, it does make sense. Most the contracts that I deal with are almost always in English. Um, and there's, uh, there's a good reason for that. Uh, English law is respected around the world. So a lot of people would actually choose English law to apply and their contracts therefore are drafted in English. Um, and you wouldn't normally have a contract governed by English law that wasn't written in English. <laughs> so English is the kind of uh, international language of the maritime world. And most of English common law, in fact, was developed through shipping uh, cases. Um, and... Uh, so that there is, a, there is a privacy of English law in that sense. It makes a lot of sense, therefore, that many, many owners, many yards, many um, other stakeholders will want English law to apply because they understand it. It's been used for many, many uh, decades, centuries, and it gives a certain degree of security because you know that the guy at the end of the day who has to decide a dispute, if there is one, is going to be respectable and not someone who is in the pocket of uh, a local um, uh, individual or or company 
but it's a genuinely independent law. Of course, not English law isn't the only law out there. American law, U.S. law is 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 also a powerful player. French law is great. Um, I'm not suggesting for one moment that um, that the English law is the only choice, but it is a primary choice. And most contracts are written in English, even if they're not governed by English law. Mm-hmm. It is uh, certainly in, in yachting. The it's the common language, whether you're yes. Italy, Asia, you know, states exactly. or wherever. It it's the common language. I think in yes. yachting generally. Uh, um, <clears throat> I know the answer to this is probably how long is a piece of string, but. On average, putting together the contracts before the build process starts, uh, putting together that framework, what kind of time is involved in that? Uh, are we talking months well, or years? Or a piece of string? <laughs> as long as it takes to build a well, boat. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it all depends on the demands of the owner and the uh, and whoever else at the yard. Um, and generally speaking, what will happen is uh, you may get a client who's excited to, to be... Uh, building a new yacht or planning to build one and you may get uh, a pretty unrealistic time frame in which that's to happen uh, and in practical terms it's my job as a, a super yacht lawyer to try to make sure that the expectations are managed and are realistic and we're not steamrolled into into agreeing a contract before we've had a proper chance to uh, work it out as i as you mentioned earlier super yacht contracts are extremely complex things there are many, many elements, and there are many other subcontracts around it. Contracts with with the manager, contracts with project managers, contracts with designers, uh, and so on. S- suppliers of all kinds, and you're involved in dealing with all that, all those different contracts. Um, then you've got con- seafarer employment agreements when you get to uh, close to the stage when the vessel is to be delivered. So the process is a very dynamic one. It's got a lot of people involved. And to put all that together in a large yacht building contract it is not an easy task. There may be finance involved. Um, there could be banks with their own demands. Uh, so you have to try and act like a ring. You have to act almost like a, like a ringmaster. Uh, and it's my personal view that uh, in a properly run transaction, you involve your super yacht lawyer at the earliest possible stage. The big mistake that uh, sometimes is made, not always, but occasionally, is that the lawyer is brought in at the last minute to, because there's, a, there's been some difficulty. And by the time you get involved, it's very difficult to have a sufficiently a good impact. Uh, and it's in the interest of all parties to get this show on the road properly at the outset. And it's not always done um, in the way that it should be done. But most of the time, the clients I act for are pretty sophisticated players. And the yards I, I work with are also pretty sophisticated players. So it's it, there's there's a general common understanding. The problems can arise if you get a new player, a new entrant to the market who doesn't necessarily understand the full picture. Okay, so they they go ahead with uh, oh yes, I want a boat, let's go for it, and they don't think about putting together the legal framework until a problem happens. Well, it's, it's, it, it it can be the case, though. It can mm-hmm. be the case, but of course, it's my job to try to explain, and uh, I do this quite often, exactly what's involved in the process and. Uh, then you know if 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 advice is followed, uh, then and you get a, a good a, a good good outcome, there's much less likely to be a dispute. Now bear in mind what I said earlier on. I started my career as a litigator. I started under dealing with other people's problems. So having gone through that process, dealing with other people's problems, it's equipped me very well, I think, to now deal with other people to deal with 
contract drafting and, and see those problems clearly in advance of them occurring and prevent them from occurring because you don't want a problem you want to try to prevent it mm. I, I'm, I'm eager to ask and I, I don't know if this has a um, because of course in a complex situation there's going to be many issues but are there two or three things that are more frequently happening in dispute or with I, well, in, in yes, any business it, a contract is important so that you have a, agreed between the two parties you know what they want and it it's however in in and you've talked about the history of, of super yachts how much it has changed particularly in the past 15 or 20 years so my my question is are there particular things that will come up more frequently in putting this in place well if you're talking about the uh, the kind of problems that come up in a typical uh, during the course of a new bill contract for example yes there are some i mean one of the most obvious ones is is delay permissible delay uh, essentially, you've got a you've got a, a build contract lasting three or four years. Let's say, which would be, would be fairly typical. Mm-hmm. You're talking about a large hundred meter plus yacht, a real top end yacht, which is the, the kind of uh, yachts we primarily deal with. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be say roughly four year build period. Now, what will tend to happen along the way is two things will happen. The owner will want to make some changes. Uh, and that's permissible delay. It, it's, it's, they, they'll, they'll, there'll be um, some extension to the build delivery time. Uh, and on the other side, the the the, the yard might make un, might make an unrealistic promise about how quickly he can build the yacht. Um, now that you always build into contracts, and you're very careful about this. I'm very careful about this. Make sure that there is a there are uh, pretty stiff penalties for late delivery. So, and they tend to kick in after at least say. 30 days uh, delay and there are daily rates of damages liquidated damages for delay often the disputes center around delay or can do so you've got to try and look at that early on and make sure a the delivery uh, deadline is realistic and that the, uh, the both parts understand what will happen if it doesn't isn't met that's a common problem but probably another, another common problem that occurs uh, in with super yachts that the luxury assets they're very beautiful objects is paint the paint systems on yachts are very complex and uh, it's very difficult to achieve a perfect paint finish. So there can often be issues with, with the paint. Uh, so that's another area of, uh, the, the, of disputes quite sometimes. So there's, there are two I'd pick out. There are many others. There, there's, uh, there's, the, there's other uh, technical problems with the vessels, like the range of the vessel. And generally speaking, what you've got is a structure in the contract to provide what will happen in, a, in the base of a simple technical dispute. So with technical disputes, something is, is just simply not, uh, doesn't involve any law, it's just whether or not the quality is up to scratch or not, then you can res- you can resolve those disputes largely by expert determination. So you've got a guy rocks up and says, yeah, you, you should do this, this or this, and it's very quickly resolved. But the moment there's any problem with interpreting the, uh, any problem of law, any more complex issue, and he goes straight into either arbitration or litigation. And you really are, I, in my view, you're foolish to go for litigation because uh, it's, uh, it's, it's complex and time-consuming. Mm-hmm. What you should aim for, what I always aim for, is arbitration. And the difference being one is trying to find an agreed resolution versus one a legal resolution? Or? 
we're talking here about um, arbitration is ca can be quite similar to litigation, but it's done dealt with by a, a panel of arbitrators normally. There's an organisation in London called the London Maritime Arbitrators Association, which uh, does deals a lot of shipping disputes, and uh, you don't have to pick them, uh, or you can use their rules and not be a member of the LMAA, which is their short uh, title, but you can use their terms, which are pretty useful uh, for setting the parameters for arbitration. So. The, the, the most important advantage of, of the use of arbitration is that it's confidential to the parties. So you can have a complex dispute and essentially no one really knows about because you're not allowed to go and tell the world the details of what's been going on. It's, it's meant to be confidential. So if, if, if I was the owner of a boat, tell me if this, this is not a, a fair example. I'm the owner of a boat and I've got myself my new Lamborghini um, <laughs> apparently this is not uncommon these days I've got myself yep. a new Lamborghini and I want the boat painted the same colour as my Lamborghini um, the spray job is done I as the owner look at it and go nope that's not exactly right I'm, I'm a type A personality is that the kind of thing that would go to arbitration where I, I don't think they've done the job as I've asked them or as I've understood or is it something more definitive well that's a good that's a good candidate for expert determination. It's very quite subjective. I mean, you could objectively measure whether the colour is the right. But the biggest problem with um, with, with paint systems is nothing to do with uh, the colour, although I can understand. I totally sympathise with anybody who's got a Lamborghini and the yacht aren't the same yeah. colour. That would be, I'd like know, to empathise, but I can only sympathise. A nice problem to have. But, um, but uh, exactly. So but It's uh, actually the, surprisingly, it, that is the trend now. I've, I spoke with um, yes. Pink Deluxe from Germany. And they were saying a finishing, deluxe. a finishing deluxe from Germany, and uh, their CEO was telling me that it's it's now it's almost a trend where the owner will buy a new car, and ask for the boat to be painted the same color. And I, I asked them, surely they should just paint the car the same color. It's a lot cheaper. Right, I, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I would say that that's the tail wagging the dog. I mean, yeah. probably the, the more expensive asset. But the, the other problems with, with paint are uh, uh, dust quality. and inclusions yeah. and uh, unevenness in finish. finish. I mean, they're technical problems that, that aren't necessarily related to color. I mean, normally there'd be a mock-up panels made before the build is commenced. So you, they can, you can check the finish you can check the car you can check the glossiness of the paint system and there could be then negotiations going on for some time during the course of the paint of doing the build uh before a final decision has to be made towards the latter stage of the build and what color to actually paint the yacht and painting comes at the end after most of the uh all the steel work's been done the hull's finished then fair the hull you then paint the boat but it's uh, it's so so you should know by that stage roughly what colour it ought to be. And you may have had, you may have been through a whole batch of Ferraris and Lamborghinis by then. So <laughs> you've got four years, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and generally speaking, it wouldn't it, it, you you would it wouldn't be a problem in most cases. But you have to be careful about what your contract says about this um, in changing the colour. As long as you, the purchaser of the yacht, uh, pay the difference if there is one. Okay, and. So just for clarity, because um, to me, the, these are, I, I think, part of the same uh, thing. Uh, you've got the contract, then there's a conflict. So one of the one of your skill sets is in conflict resolution. Yes. So I have a problem with the contract. Uh, I don't believe they built this to the quality that I was expecting or that I, I feel was, was uh, agreed. I then go into a process of conflict resolution 
before I go to arbitration or legality? Well, you, you would. Um, well, well, that's uh, that's quite a big topic because, of course, how you resolve disputes is is essential. And in fact, I've um, uh, my 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 firm's newsletter coming out for the Monaco Boat Show will have a an article on this on this very subject. If you're if you have a problem, the first obviously you have to go through a number of stages or should do. Mediation is great. That's just a means of facilitating negotiation. But it uh, is rarely included as a as a compulsory provision in any yacht contract for the simple reason that uh, that um, uh, that when you when you force people to mediate, it tends to be less successful than if people do it voluntarily. So as a lawyer, as a dispute resolution uh, person with a lot of experience with dispute resolution, I would always say you should always look at mediation if you can. Negotiation and mediation is always a good first step. But if it gets it to the stage where you've tried every option and you, you're not getting anywhere and you're looking towards what's going to go on, you've got to pick up the contract, look at what the dispute resolution clause says. And what it should do is be clear. It should be crystal clear about how the process of resolving disputes is to be uh, undertaken. So, for example, if it says arbitration in London, uh, it should be clear how many arbitrators, what process is going to be, and how that's done. If it's an expert determination provision, because there's a purely technical dispute, again, it should be a straightforward process. Um, but uh, the first thing is to understand, I mean, clients, clients and people who are involved in disputes can easily get very emotional about the problem and because they, they're stakeholders and they buy into it. Again, so it's my job as, as a, a super yacht lawyer to understand the problem, understand it properly. There's no point in firing blanks. You've got to get there and, and make sure people understand the, the rights and the wrongs of the situation. And I would never recommend to any client that they just jump into litigation or arbitration as, as a first step because I think that's the wrong move. And can I ask, I, I read through your bio, which um, which was a humbling experience for me, I must say. Um, well, one of the phrases that, that, that I noticed was, uh, you know, I, I'm a father of four daughters, so I, I'm very used to the process of conflict resolution. Um, and, but but the, the, there was one term which, which I noticed, which was uh, alternative conflict resolution. Alternative dispute, dispute resolution. Dispute resolution. Yeah. Now, to me... Uh, Going back to my four daughters, the alternative to finding a resolution is not finding one and I lose. <laughs> In the sense of super yachts and, and, um, uh, and contract law, well, what's alternative dispute resolution? Well, that um, alternative dispute resolution, the most common form of alternative dispute resolution is in fact mediation. It's just something which is um, a bit like let's all be friends and let's get around a table and agree something. It's a bit more casual. Uh, let's get together. The, the great thing about, well, the mediation has some big advantages and uh, that people not involved in these things don't necessarily always fully appreciate. Um, one advantage of mediation over any other form of dispute resolution is that it can leave relationship. You can, if you successfully go through a mediation process, you can actually preserve business relationships. Um, the, 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 the problem with litigation or arbitration is that it can be very confrontational and damage relationships or destroy them permanently in the process of trying to resolve dispute. The other advantage is that um, both parties can tell the mediator during the course of mediation what exactly it is they really want. 
So, but on the basis that the mediator will be told and know what their true bottom line is, for example, but he will not, that mediator will not tell the other side. So the only person who knows what each side's bottom line is, is the mediator. Now, he won't mention that, but if he's got that knowledge, that can make a big difference to his ability to resolve dispute because the parties may actually be saying, I want, you know, let's say I want one million pounds and the other guy says he wants 20 million pounds. But actually it turns out that when they, when they really get getting close, actually the guy who wants one million pounds, uh, offering one million pounds, I should say, would actually be prepared to offer more and the guy who wants more money would be prepared to accept less. There's less of a difference between the parties than, than either know. Um, and a skilled mediator will try and bring people together and preserve relationships and develop um, new ways of resolving disputes for new deals, new contract opportunities, um, uh, and new uh, solutions down the line. Courts and arbitrators can't do that. They're very much a question of right and wrong, whereas mediation is a bit more grey. But grey can be good. Grey can be good. Um, uh, the best mediations tend to be uh, when both parties come out feeling a little bit bruised, but generally they're prepared to accept the, re the result. Uh, because believe me, a complex arbitration or a complex long-running case, whether it involves yachts, aircraft, or any other subject, uh, is very expensive or can be very expensive and much more so, much more damaging and, and, and wasteful of individuals' time than they expect. So uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, Alternative dispute resolution and mediation terms is it, mediation as, as the main component of alternative dispute resolution is a very powerful one. Others include, I mentioned expert determinations, a form, I guess you could say, almost of, of, of uh, alternative dispute of uh, ADR. There are mini trials. There are all sorts of subsets, but the most common one, by far and away, the most common is mediation. It's amazingly similar to raising four daughters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, the thing is, it's all about essentially what is mediation, really? What is any alternative dispute resolution? It's discussion rather than it's, it's, it's kind of a funny jaw, jaw, not yeah. war, war. It's all about not pulling the trigger on the nuclear weapon. It's, it's, mm. it's trying to step back from the brink and say, look, let's sort this out. To everybody's benefit. Well, it's, it is. Mm. And uh, I, I, the biggest mistake that anyone could make is to, is to start a, a dispute when they're feeling very emotional about it. Be dispassionate about it. Think about your uh, what you're really looking for, what, you, what you're really after. And again, it's often my job in situations where there is a dispute, to, just to try to give a sense of realism and explain the consequences uh, of going forward with, with a full-blown uh, hearing and an arbitration, for example. Even though arbitration has got the advantage of being confidential, uh, a full-blown arbitration is still very similar in many respects to going to court, except you're, you've got that confidentiality. And you can, of course, pick me, uh, pick arbitrators who have the right skill set to resolve this dispute correctly. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a, I'm a big fan of mediation, a big fan of alternative dispute resolution, uh, a big fan basically of avoiding going to court. But if you have to go to court, or you have to go to arbitration, so be it. You've then got to make sure you're well prepared. How usual is it that um, the build of a boat ends up in a conflict situation or an arbitrary situation? Is, is that normal or is that the odd occasion? Well, along the way, you'll get all sorts of mini disputes, which are not so much disputes. They're just um, uh, both parties jockeying for position and trying to win a point. Mm -hmm. Now, if you've drafted the, the build contract properly, 
uh, whether you're the acting for the yard or acting for the, uh, the the purchaser of the yacht or any other asset, then you'll have some certainty about the outcome. Or you'll, you'll, hopefully, the contract will be, will speak for itself. Mm-hmm. But there are disputes along the way. There always are. And I've mentioned I've mentioned paint. I've mentioned uh, delay. There will be uh, speed and consumption, performance issues with the yacht. There could be um, uh, disputes about the cost of certain items. Although there should be a fixed price for the basic build, there'll then be uh, other items. Be very careful about tax. Make sure that uh, uh, as a a purchaser, that you know exactly what your liability for payment of any tax might be. And obviously you don't want to pay VAT on the hull, and it normally would not be uh, chargeable if it's a yacht built in Europe for export. But but there's a lot of of scope for, um, for, for disputes along the way. And... It's, that's perfectly normal. That's, that's entirely normal. What isn't normal and should be avoided, if you can possibly can, is a major dispute that ends up in arbitration, which is, um, generally speaking, going to be because there is some lack of clarity or something new's happened, um, and and or you've got some somebody trying to get out of an obligation they otherwise uh, they otherwise obviously have, but. Um, these things happen. You can't always avoid it. I'm, I, we, we, I've been involved recently in a very large dispute uh, involving a yacht and uh, went on for quite some time, some years. And uh, it, they went all the way through the arbitration process. And um, I'm pleased to say we, well, my client is very happy with the result. And but that, that, that is it's not normal, uh, in my experience, for there to be a full-blown arbitration because it's my job and the job of the other side's lawyer to try and stop that. So uh, can I expand from uh, obviously the importance of contracts in, in a new build between the client and the, the shipbuilder, but expanding from that, are there other very key parts of the industry that a super yacht lawyer, is, just put it this way, to, is helpful to be involved? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking offhand, for example, we've had a number of discussions on air about contracts between captain and crew and yes. the company that right. employ them that is well, to be honest one of the very big ones in in the crew side um yeah. i presume well, similarly with buying and selling um yes i'm sure just like on a domestic level there are other areas that are particularly key to have a superior lawyer who's specialized in maritime law look particularly at the contracts being involved well, you mentioned uh, seafarer employment agreements. Um, we, my firm, was involved right from the early days with uh, the new seafarer employment agreements that came out as a result of the Maritime Labour Convention, which mandates that uh, essentially seafarers get a similar level of protection to land-based employees. That never used to be the case. Mm. Uh, and we got involved very closely working with uh, flag states, particularly the Cayman Islands, the, the largest super yacht flag state got very closely involved in working with uh, some of their people in trying to make sure that um, we had um, watertight contracts that complied, and watertight in the sense of being regulatory compliant with the, the new law. So our contracts, uh, I happen to believe, are among the most advanced uh, employment contracts uh, for seafarers in the world, because we've worked with these, worked from the very beginning with the, uh, with the, with the flag states. So the regulatory side um, like uh, there's still some flexibility, by the way. You can still put in clauses and include uh, other points that are not mandated by in, by law. But in practical terms, 
you have to go, you have to comply with the regulations which affect the uh, governing law of the contract and the maritime labor convention and that's that's something which just just requires some knowledge of the law and understanding the crew and, that, and that's very important because the crew your 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 captain your chief officer and your all members of the crew are vital parts of the industry absolutely vital you've got to look after your crew you've got to treat them properly if you do it'll be like any any staff with any company it'll reward you uh, down the line you'll always get some benefit loyal crew good crew are enormously important so the contracts that those one set of contracts something else you've got to be aware of is the regulatory environment in which you're operating because uh, you've got to comply the yacht will have to comply with certain classification rules so your uh, which your choice of which class um, uh, Lloyd's for example American Bureau of Shipping uh, whoever you're using uh, you've got to comply with their rules and obligations uh, You've got to try to make sure that that's uh, that's 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 in order. You really shouldn't. You really should de- de- determine from an early stage during the course of uh, building a yacht exactly whether it, how it's going to be used. Is it going to be used for commercial charter purposes or pure, purely private? Is it going to be used um, as a as a uh, to carry a lot of guests or only a small number? Because that may determine how much the yacht costs to build and also how you can use it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got to think ahead. Think ahead of um, uh, of, of the curve, if you like, in order to make sure that the uh, you've got you've put in place all the regulations, you've got to get a great yacht manager. So your contracts, when you're involved in a yacht, you've you've sought your crew out, fantastic. You've got to then employ the crew through a crew vehicle, because most owners don't directly own yachts; they own them through SPVs, special purpose vehicles, and the crew may be employed by a separate entity, also employed, uh, maybe run out of, I'd say. Uh, Guernsey or somewhere, which is an employment um, uh, well known for, for employing as, as a facility to employ crew, and you've got to decide who's going to manage the yacht. Is it going to be um, a large yacht manager, or maybe one of the major brokers have their own uh, yacht management divisions, or people could help with that. I personally like the idea of using um, bespoke small um, yacht uh, companies now, uh, uh, yacht managers, uh, and we work with um, some superb smaller yacht managers who handle some really large projects and uh, they're very good um good people so you, your contract with your yacht manager is very important as well all your service all your service providers your crew your so the companies that employ the crew the yacht managers the, the co- contracts with the crew the also your contracts during the build process with your designer and uh, with external suppliers of all kinds are vitally important there's a there's a huge list of subcontracts you're going to have to work through uh, in order to um, in order to get the whole project off the ground. And when you're after the project's been delivered, you'll have a, a, an infrastructure in place with your crew, with your manager, um, with your tax advisors, uh, and, and so on, who will help to make the project a success. Because there's a big issue here, which I think I should mention, and I'm sure this has also been um, it's also of interest to your your listeners. And they'll know this anyway if they're involved in the industry. There's an increasing scrutiny on tax compliance by European port mm. state control, and uh, we've seen this with uh, a number of uh, inspections, all successfully passed. I happen to add on on yachts that we've acted for. Uh, but there are some very very simple steps that people can take to mitigate that risk. Um, and you have to be aware of that wherever you're. It depends very much on where the yacht is, not only how it's used commercially or privately, but also where it's, which ports it's going to visit, which which countries is it going to enter into. Because every time you visit, 
Italy or France or Greece or Spain, you're entering a domestic jurisdiction's territorial waters. Mm -hmm. So you've not only got to take account of the of the various um, international conventions that would apply, but also the domestic municipal law, as we call it, of the countries in which you're entering. So have a network of, of good people locally uh, you can rely upon, port agents who can help uh, with the vessel um, and the tax issues. Um, make sure you know how you're using the boat. Make sure the captain and crew are up to speed on how what they should say if there is an inspection. And um, presumably so also... Um for the captain and crew, there, for example, if, if you're, as we know from, from last year, if you're spending longer times in France, um, yes. it's going to change the tax situation for your crew on board than if you're just visiting for a month or two. So there's the whole well, legal aspect of the tax of the international crew you will probably have because you will have everyone from Britain to South Africa who could be on board. Precisely. Well, that's right. If you stay in France uh, uh, for any period of time, then the risk is that they'll be you'll be, be subject to French social security rules, and unless you're and, and they will be applied unless you're able to prove that the crew benefit from an equivalent benefits under their own local uh, port state. Uh, uh, and that is an issue that they that, that there could be um, regulatory issues of that kind. The Edim problems in France, the problems mm. with uh, tax is something that we've certainly been involved in giving advice on and getting local lawyers involved again it's a question we have a network of lo local lawyers around the world we can we we, we know and can, can rely upon and uh, our advice generally is if, if we don't know the answer if we're not absolutely sure of the answer ourselves to say well let's get you know fred or jane or uh francois or whoever it happens to be let's get them involved because we want to make sure we've got feet on the ground locally and then we can try and project manage the problem and stop the problem from and stop, stop there being a problem. But before you even get to that stage, uh, you've got to be sure at the at the high level that you are you're quite right about France. That's a that's a problem jurisdiction in that sense. But you you've got to make sure that uh, you've 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 got a you've got the infrastructure in place to help. Uh, B that you've actually you've you looked at the, the these issues, but also you've got the, the captain and crew understand the simple steps that they can take as and when an inspection takes place that might prevent a small problem escalating into a potentially bigger one. So you um, you really, it's not just about um, putting the bill together, you're really with the boat for you know, the, the, the lifespan of that ownership. Well, you could be. I mean, I, I, my, my, yeah, well, my longest, my, my, my longest yacht owning clients, I've, if you like, lived through the entire process from build through use through to sale. And then build again. So it, uh, it's a long yeah, relationship. It, it can last. Mm. My, 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 my most important clients, my longest, are, 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 my, all my clients are important. Let's be quite clear about that. But yeah. my, the longest serving clients of any any lawyer, I'm sure, but also certainly my, my, my firm, have been clients for a long time. I like to think it's because we give them the best possible service. But it, also we understand their business and how they want to use yachts better than uh, than anybody else does. And we are always on hand if a problem does arise. Well, I'm I'm really saddened to say, but we're we're just hitting the top of the hour, and uh, I, and I'm only just beginning uh, to understand a bit more about the legal aspects. We're going to have to ask you to come back again, Quinton. Uh, well, it's a complex thing, and yeah. uh, it, you you can't explain it all quickly. But no. you perhaps your listeners 
I now understand a bit more about. I, cer- I certainly have a better understanding and a better appreciation as well for, for what goes into it. And all, all in my mind, I see this mountain of paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid so, that's, why, that, um, that's why you have to use somebody like me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think d- just as it is on a domestic level, I think it's also shown the importance of very clear contracts and agreements of what the expectations are of both parties before you begin any project. We have to go to the news, unfortunately. Mr. Quinton Bargate, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank, you, thank you for sharing this, this, this part of the industry. Uh, we've been speaking with Quinton Bargate, who's the CEO and founder of Bargate Murray, uh, specializing in super yacht law. Thank you again, Quinton. I really enjoyed our chat. Very thank you very much and goodbye. Have a great day. Bye bye now. You are listening to Super Yacht Radio.